Good morning and welcome to Crescent Church Online. Thank you to our members and our visitors for joining again with us this morning. Today uh, we continue our series in 1 Peter and Tim Graham will be our speaker later in the service. Our opening hymn today reminds us that we must submit our ways and our plans to God. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me save that thy art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light.
Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for all you mean to us. You are the ruler of all, yet you love us, shelter us and provide for us through life's difficulties and battles. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, that he bore our sins on the cross and that we can be forgiven and rescued through him. This morning, we want to pray for everyone who is listening and particularly ask for blessing upon our family relationships, for parents, children, grandparents, brothers and sisters, husbands and wives. Give patience where it is needed and help us to love one another. We thank you for the acts of kindness we have witnessed in recent weeks and the community spirit that has sprung up. We pray that this will continue well beyond these current days. We ask for wisdom and clear guidance for our politicians in Northern Ireland and for the UK as a whole. As they make decisions, that these will be balanced, safe and timed correctly. We also remember countries across the world where the healthcare is limited and people live in poverty. Protect these nations, we pray. Guide us as a church over these next weeks. We pray for the various church committees and for the elders as they plan services and events to maintain the rhythm of church life and guide us back to a more normal church programme. We thank you for your love for each one of us, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A really important part of our church family at Crescent are the children and young people. We hope that you're all doing okay and that you're surviving while you're off school. This morning, Rachel Glass is going to read us a story entitled The Present of a Son, and then Amy Cullen will lead us in a great wee song Hey, Jesus loves me. Please remember to do the actions. Abraham, God said, how many stars are there in the sky? God was about to tell his friend a wonderful secret. Let me see, Abraham said, 993, 994, 997. Oh, oh no. Wait. Too many. Guess what? God laughed. I will give you as many children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. You won't be able to count them either. There was only one problem. Abraham was 99 years old and his wife Sarah was 90 years old and they had no children. Surely they were far too old to have a baby. But Abraham trusted God. He knew that when God says something, it was as good as done. And sure enough, nine months later, just as God had promised, Sarah gave birth to a baby boy. They named him Isaac, which means son of laughter. And Sarah laughed. A glorious, happy laugh. Her dream had come true. God would do as he promised. He would always look after Abraham's family. They were going to be his special people. God knew that his secret rescue plan could only work if Abraham trusted him completely. God had to make sure Abraham would do whatever he asked. So a few years later, God asked Abraham to give him a present. Abraham liked giving God presents. He gave God his animals. They were called sacrifices and they were a way to say, I love you to God. 
But this time, God didn't want a lamb or a goat. God wanted Abraham to give him something more, much more. He wanted Abraham to give him his son, his only son, the son he loved, Isaac. Put his boy on the altar and kill him as a sacrifice? How could God want him to do such a terrible thing? Abraham didn't understand, but he knew that God was his father who loved him. And so Abraham trusted him. Early the next morning, Abraham and Isaac set off. They climbed the steep stony trail up the mountain. Isaac carried the wood on his back. His father carried the knife and the coals. Papa, Isaac said, we have everything except we forgot the lamb for the sacrifice. God will give us a lamb, son, Abraham said. They built an altar and laid the wood on top. Abraham asked his son to climb on top of the wood. Isaac didn't understand, but he knew his father loved him. And so he trusted him. He climbed up onto the altar and Abraham tied his boy to the wood. Isaac didn't struggle or try to run away. He just lay there quietly and didn't make a sound. Everything was ready. Abraham took the knife. Tears were filling up his eyes. Pain was filling up his heart. His hand was shaking. He lifted the knife high into the air. Stop, God said. Don't hurt the boy. I want him to live and not die. I know now that you love me because you would have given me your only son. Abraham felt his heart leap with joy. He unbound Isaac and folded him in his arms. Great sobs shook the old man's whole body. Scalding tears filled his eyes. And for a long time, they stayed there like that, in each other's arms, the boy and his dad. Suddenly, Abraham saw a ram caught in some brambles, the sacrifice. God had given them what they needed just in time. The ram would die so Isaac didn't have to. And so Abraham sacrificed the ram instead of his son. And as they sat there on the mountaintop, watching the embers of the fire die in the cool night air, the stars above them sparkling in the velvet sky, God helped Abraham and Isaac understand something. God wanted his people to live, not die. God wanted to rescue his people, not punish them. But they must trust him. One day someone will be born into your family, God promised them, and he will bring happiness to the whole world. God was getting ready to give the whole world a wonderful present. It would be God's way to tell his people, I love you. Many years later, another son would climb another hill, carrying wood on his back. Like Isaac, he would trust his father and do what his father asked. He wouldn't struggle or run away. Who was he? God's son, his only son, the son he loved, the Lamb of God.
Many thanks to Rachel and Amy. The elders believe that it is really important to maintain the normal rhythms of church life at Crescent. We are aware that there is so much going on at the minute and we are thankful for the commitment of so many. We want to highlight five key weekly events at Crescent and how these will run over the next few weeks. You could say they are the heartbeat of Crescent life. Number one, over the past three Sundays, we have met to remember the Lord in the breaking of bread service. This will continue on Zoom at 10 a.m. Our Sunday morning online service will continue in its current format at 11 a.m. At 7 p.m. on Sundays, we will begin a live service using Zoom, and this will commence next Sunday, the 24th of May. 
our fourth event are our home groups and they will run for all groups on the first and third Thursdays of the month. On the second and fourth Thursday nights, our corporate church prayer meeting will take place at 7pm. Please take a note of that time, 7pm. Details and links for all of these events will be sent out over the next few days. But for now, remember there will be three services on Sundays at our normal times and an event each Thursday night. 1 Peter 2 verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Let's join with the Crescent Band and sing the words of I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I am accepted. You were condemned. Our speaker this morning is Tim Graham. 
Tim and his wife Susie are members of Crescent and they have two children. Tim started our series in 1 Peter a few weeks ago and we look forward to his teaching again this morning. Before Tim comes uh, to speak, Neville McMullen will read the passage for us. Our reading today is taken from 1 Peter chapter 2 starting at verse 11, reading through to chapter 3 and verse 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Chapter 3 Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewellery or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honour to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil.
Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm one of the members here at Crescent Church, and it's my privilege to open up uh, 1 Peter, the passage that Neville has read to us this morning. Uh, I think it's probably fair to say that if you speak to most people under the age of 35 in Belfast today, the gospel message to them seems ridiculous. It seems implausible. Our values now in 2020 Belfast are pleasure, experience, stuff. So how do we reach a, a society that, that doesn't want to hear the message of the gospel? What's God's strategy, if you like, to break through with the good news of Jesus Christ? It is a joy, isn't it, to, to, to see someone come to know Jesus Christ in the scriptures, to see them uh, hear the preaching of the gospel or to, to discuss the scriptures with them over coffee and, and see new life come as the scriptures takes them to Jesus. But how is my colleague who needs 25 hours in the day to keep all this, the, 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 the plates of, of life spinning going to, to make time to come to Christianity Explored? Or, or, or how's your, your, your mate at uni who's gay and thinks that God hates them and, and, and she also probably hates God right now, going to take the time to tune in to hear the word of God preached. In fact, it's more likely that they're going to be suspicious of you and your Christian faith. With the ever-increasing false stereotypes and misrepresentation in the, the media, they're going to assume that you're some sort of bigoted and meddlesome Ned Flanders. Well, Peter's instruction in this letter is, is not to retreat in such an environment, and nor is it to shout louder. But in this passage, he's going to tell us to live good lives, ordinary Christian lives, as a way to break through with the gospel. In verse number 11, the first verse that Neville read to us, Peter again uses the imagery for, for us as Christians, as sojourners, as exilers, as exiles. We're, we're travelers with temporary visas. We don't invest everything in life here. And we're a bit uncomfortable because we're foreigners. We don't quite fit in. But while we're here, in verse number 12, this really sums up the point of the passage. The NIV puts it like this in verse number 12. Live such good lives among the nations, the pagans, so that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Live such good lives that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So I want to unpack this, this passage with two points. We want to look at living good lives first and foremost by submitting to authority for the sake of God. And secondly, live good lives by willing to being willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus. So firstly, live good lives in the sight of all through submission for God's sake. Now more than ever, as we've considered in Northern Ireland, what we do is going to be considered and watched before what we say will ever be listened to. And people may be at first unwilling to open their ears, but their eyes are going to be fixed on us. And particularly when we're faced with hostile or difficult environments, what are they going to see before what they're going to hear. Well, the key repeated instruction for goodness throughout the passage is be subject. Verse 13, 
be subject. Verse 14, or 18, be subject. Verse number one of chapter three, likewise, wives, be subject. It's sort of summarized there in verse number 13. Be, be subject to every human institution. In, in living good lives in, in the sight of others, it's going to require that we model submission, a willingness to obey and acknowledge and take authority in the structures within society. And critically in verse number 13, it's for the Lord's sake. And this is continually restated. This is the will of God, verse number 15. Being mindful of God, verse number 19. Behaving in the sight of God, verse number 20. And again, verse number 4 of chapter 3. Peter's concern is, yes, what the world out there sees as it looks in. But the motivation, first and foremost, before what they see on a horizontal direction, is what the Lord desires to see in the vertical dimension. And so our good behavior, it's not merely a respectable, a respectable show that we put on, but our goodness finds its source in him. And so it can be authentically traced back to our heavenly father. You know, in this passage, Peter obviously expects that there's going to be areas of common good, if you like, where, where we're going to overlap with a secular culture and Christian behavior. And they're going to recognize it as good. And, and one of the buzzwords I hear all the time in the work uh, is this word authenticity. Marketers continually bang on about sincerity and integrity and transparency. These are the virtues that batch coffee drinking millennials want to have in their brands and in their workplaces and relationships. And that's an opportunity, surely, isn't it, for us to connect and to show that Christian good behavior authentically comes from a God who is authentically good. Any measure of, of graciousness that we, we might show isn't because of our genetic nature or our nurtured upbringing. It's because of the, the heaps of grace that God has lavished upon us. And so too with our submission. It's not just to be seen or to be pious or, or to be merely compliant, but it's because we love and worship a God who at his core submitted for the good of others. So it's not going to be based on our temperament. Goodness, no. Many of us are not naturally tepid. Submission doesn't come easy. It's not thoughtless or apathetic. But we willingly submit to the authorities that God has for his sake, so that his reputation and, and making him known so that people would see Jesus more clearly. So let's look at the specific examples that Peter here gives. He's going to talk about government, he's going to talk about the workplace, and he's going to talk about marriage. First and foremost, the emperor or the, the queen and their government. Authority is there by God's design to keep law and order. And God Given, God's given them a purpose to, to punish the wicked and to reward what is right. And, and I suppose just like our new 21st century society, the old Roman society was very similar in that it was pluralistic. That is to say, it, it, it welcomed all gods and belief systems. 
And so to stand up and to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, the one Lord, well, that would actually make people feel a little bit uncomfortable, wary perhaps, even suspicious. And I highlight the point because that's going to become more and more the case here, isn't it? As Christianity becomes more of a minority view in public life and in our country, we're going to be continually more probed and held in suspicion, portrayed perhaps as problematic for a new modern society. And so Peter says we're going to have to overcome that misrepresentation, not give anyone that excuse. At a minimum, we're going to have to be good law-abiding citizens. But he also implies here a greater doing of good, a positive commitment to more than just our own family's needs, our own church family's needs, but to the wider community as servants of God for the good of the city. And so, of course, we need to be good neighbours. We need to continually be involved in the front lines of showing care and compassion to society's most vulnerable, whether it be food banks or or Christians Against Poverty, uh, international welcome or pregnancy crisis and hospital ministries, to name but a few. Our submission to government and our doing good in society, that is God's will so that we can silence critics and represent Jesus Christ well in 2020. Even this current crisis, isn't it? An opportunity to show that a watching world that we're obedient to the government's rules for the good of others. Peter then narrows down into two key relationships that sort of form the basis of the majority of of, of our everyday life, the workplace and marriage. Everyone knew back then, as they do now, that these settings, these relationships, they really constitute the backbone of a strong and stable society. And so it's in these mundane settings, if you like, the daily grind that Peter says we're called to do eternal business. And in these two crucial areas, the message we preach is going to be judged by how we behave. More specifically, he addresses a Christian slave who who may be working in a non-Christian environment or a Christian wife who's married to a non-Christian husband. And of course, these two examples in particular, uh, these contexts, these people are going to be watched. Will the Christian slave rebel? Will a Christian wife be disloyal? I guess for us, it's sort of like, will a Christian at work lack sufficient commitment to the, to the good of others in the company? Or will a newly converted spouse in a relationship be drawn away from her marriage responsibilities? If so, then they can hardly be trusted and the message can't be taken seriously. In both situations, Peter's urging is to submit with appropriate respect. Firstly, then work life. A significant number of Peter's recipients would have been household slaves and think of the magnificent description that he has given them in what they've received in becoming God's people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And yet, even though that transformation has happened in their lives, that's no reason not to obey their earthly masters. And Peter's realistic. It's going to be hard going sometimes. They're going to be treated unfairly, but continue to submit, continue in doing good in the workplace. 
And in that testing situation, Peter reminds them that this is grace before God. It might not feel like it, but that is the position of God's favour and love, the place of proper submission. And we need to be realistic about it too, don't we? At work, we're going to be asked to put this principle to the test. We all have bosses, managers, shareholders, boards that we're answerable to. And sometimes they can be difficult, unruly, and sometimes even incompetent. But yet we're called to submit with all respect. I don't know what it might look like for you in your work. Perhaps submission might be accepting a new role, restructuring in a COVID-19 world. It may be as simple as just taking on more paperwork or, or being willing to train the younger staff. Wouldn't it be just great if there was always a sense that, that you know what, it's good to work with you. You're easy to work with, you're good to work with. So there will be times when the, the boss asks us to, to stay late, to work on that project or perfect that pitch. And, and you might think it's unreasonable, he's being a perfectionist, the job's sort of done. It might even be church prayer meeting or home group that night. But if it's a direct request, I think you have to stay. We have not to be, to be known as the complainer, as the, the obstacle to change, or the one who has to be managed along. No, we're submissive at work so that people see and realize there's something different about you. And it means that when you have the opportunity to explain your Christian hope or invite them to tune in on a Sunday to hear the word of God preached, they have no reason not to take you seriously. The same principle of submission for God's sake is true, although perhaps even harder in marriage and home life. The specific context of a mixed marriage is hard. And this Christian wife, she'll be particularly watched by her friends and in-laws. But Peter's instruction to her is the same as what it is for every Christian wife, that she must submit to her own husband. Now submission is not because she's inferior in her intellect or morality or emotionally or spiritually. It's the restoration of the, the kind of relationship that God originally intended from the beginning of a, for a husband and for a wife. Like we've thought about, it's not based on temperament or personality, but it's a, a thoughtful, voluntary submission, a choice for the Lord's reputation to complement your husband with your unique strengths and gifts and personality and talents so that you'd be connected as a, a whole, the role of submission, not competition to lead. And although Peter doesn't go into the specifics, I know it raises a lot of practical questions that each and every couple will have to work out. But it's ultimately the union of two flawed individuals. At its very heart is in the heart of God's plan to transform society. And so wives are called to submit to their husbands, not just because it's the expectation of society, but that their faithfulness and their commitment and their inner beauty might point an unbelieving or even an immature husband and watching society 
to her Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It is liberating to consider this imperishable beauty of inner womanhood that Peter talks about, precious and valued by God. Ours is a, an insta-saturated world where we get daily ideas and destructive portrayals of what true womanhood is presented with filters and Photoshop work. Here, Peter says, a, a Christian woman's focus is something lasting. A Christian wife focuses on, on, on true and inner beauty that doesn't fade away, that of a gentle and quiet spirit. A spirit that's not grasping or coveting after worldly things. A spirit that worships and develops eternal characteristics that will last. Faith, love, and of course, hope. And Peter knows it's not going to be easy. It's not natural in this broken world. And so he concludes his word to, to women and to, to wives in verse number six. Do good and do not fear. Fear often lies at the heart of our, our sin response. And it will take great courage from wives to stand against the endless pursuit in the world of physical beauty, of competition, of, of getting more stuff. And so godly women and faithful wives will need to be fearless and strong in pursuing this good our final verse, verse number seven, Peter turns to, to husbands and says, likewise, husbands. Often we husbands in the New Testament are instructed to love our wives. But here we have the other side of, of the coin. Live with your wives in an understanding way or literally according to knowledge. Knowledge and love are, are often interwoven in the Bible because you can't love someone really well if you don't know them really well. And the application, I think, is plain, isn't it? Husbands, we need to take more time to get to know our wives. If we want to love them like Jesus, to love them self-sacrificially, we have to know them well. Wives are not there to provide an ego boost. They're not a complex problem to be solved or a voice even to be appeased. They are a complementary partner to be known and loved. And Peter knows that we've been created differently. God has so designed it in a way that we're different so that we're more interdependent and that the, the union of man and woman might express the very image of God. And so of course we're going to have strengths and different weaknesses. Husbands get to know them, he says, so that you can best love and support your wife. He references particularly physical weakness. Support your wife and show honour. We're called to these roles to build marriages in a society that is given over to selfishness and personal ambition. But it's as co-heirs, he says, for the eternal inheritance that lies ahead. We stand together on this journey, husband and wife, shoulder to shoulder, in submission and love reflecting the beauty of God who has saved us and made us one flesh. So live good lives in the sight of all, firstly by submitting 
to authority for God's sake. But secondly, live good lives in the sight of all, willing to suffer unfairness for Jesus' sake. I've purposely not majored on the key thing that runs through each one of these different scenarios and settings. And that is that of suffering unfairly. This great calling to to make God known through the ordinary goodness of Christian life through submission at one level is really not attractive at all. It's it's not appealing. It's a path that will be hard, unfair and, and at times just plain painful being subject to to government, like ungodly authorities that that may pressurize, marginalize, persecute you, it's going to be suffering. Being submissive to slaves, especially in first century Rome, Peter says it's possible that you're going to suffer and be beaten unjustly at the hands of a wicked and cruel master, but be prepared to endure a marriage too. It's surely why Sarah is cited here in verse number six as an example of a submissive wife. Abraham, for all of his strengths, was not a great husband and not a great family decision maker. And Sarah was put in the position where for her to choose to back her husband and to submit to him would come at great personal cost and hardship. And of course, without a godly balanced marriage union it can become a place of despair and hardship so how can we endure this unfairness that we're being called to if if our submission and and living these good ordinary christian lives what happens if they don't seem to be making a difference to people how do we keep it up how do we keep going well at the heart of this passage in verse 21 to 25 Peter points us to the greatest suffering servant, Jesus Christ. As I read this passage, I've struggled with it because it makes me feel vulnerable, in in danger of being under the heel of society, exposed. But that's exactly how the Son of God became like us. And he is our true model for how to live submissively, and yet with incredible significance. How to endure the most oppressive of circumstances and yet for eternal, abundant joy. In this, these five verses, they're full of quotes and allusions to Isaiah 53. And it's as, as if Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 53 gives sense and clarity to Peter as he thinks back on the Lord Jesus and recounts the path that Jesus took that night of his crucifixion from the garden, through the unjust courts, through the cruel soldiers' barracks, out to the place of the skull to die a slave's death. He endured physical abuse, but verbal mockery. Think what they called him. The very embodiment of goodness stood before us. What injustice. And what was his response? He did not sin. He did not retaliate. He didn't lie or deceive when he was put on the spot or under pressure like we so naturally do. He he didn't meet their aggression with threats of his own. Jesus accepted it 
with silence, but in faith he entrusted himself to the judgment of God. That's the steps of Jesus that we're called to follow in. His, his silence wasn't weakness, nor was it a sort of pardon for everyone who carried out the injustice. But he had a bigger vision. He had an eternal perspective. And he himself didn't seek vengeance because he knew he could trust God's justice. And he didn't save himself because he was fulfilling the divine plan to save multitudes of people. And in verse 21, Peter uses the word for example. It's the same word that is used for a pattern of letters that you would give to a child to trace out to learn the alphabet. It suggests something that, that should be copied to the, the closest detail. He is our example like that. Not one example out of a range of options, but the example. His and his only are the footsteps we're called to walk in. And of course we'll want to strike back, we'll want to speak out. But that would be a small-minded human response and a failure to trust God's justice as we try and seek vengeance now and not wait for God's timing. Our respectful submission to governments in work at home, it might require unfair suffering, but it's not pointless heartache. It's us following in the saving path of Jesus Christ. And what's more, verse 24, Jesus bore our sins. By, by crucifixion, he went to the, 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 he was brought to the lowest of the low and he, he paid that price, that unbelievable price for all of our sin and wickedness so that we wouldn't have any more part in it. No part in bitterness or revenge or rebellion. But rather we would be free to live righteously, to submit, to be faithful, to be patient, endure, to wait on God. And I don't know, maybe this morning you're listening and you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian. Consider verse 24 carefully. Jesus took upon himself the full weight of sin. All the hurt you have caused others, all the mistakes you've let go and can't get back, the wrongs you've committed. He, completely undeserving of all of it, stood in the firing line, took it upon himself, suffered the tremendous totality of it all so you can go free. He was willing to suffer the greatest injustice so that you can be free from sin and guilt and death and live a life of freedom and goodness. And yes, it won't be easy, but don't you want to follow a master like that? And Christian, as I've said before, this passage can make us feel vulnerable and the whole book is written to those who, who just feel exposed and in a risky, precarious position in this hostile world as foreigners and exiles. But listen to how Peter finishes chapter 2. By his wounds you've been healed. The lethal physical wounds of Jesus have have healed our lethal spiritual sickness and, and we like wandering sheep have now been brought back. We've returned and we're under the watchful eye of our shepherd as we follow in his footsteps. What safety, what protection, what security and deliverance. So keep on doing good even if it brings about unfair suffering. 
Do not wander off from Christ. God has made us secure. Whatever the circumstances and trials, we follow Jesus who himself suffered the ultimate injustice and yet lives and leads our way on forward. So as we close, live such good lives in the sight of all, submitting to the authority for God's sake and being willing to suffer on fairness for Jesus' sake. All the grand truth that Peter has been expounding in the first part of his letter, our new birth, our eternal inheritance, our our place in the people of God and God's spiritual temple, it all boils down to the daily grind and strong, consistent, Christ-like Christian character That sort of living is exactly the God's strategy to break through in our rapidly changing post-Christian Belfast in 2020. So as we place our feet in the footsteps of Jesus, he takes us on the path that yes, we'll go to the cross and the grave, but then we'll ultimately go to eternal glory. He is our living hope. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your wonderful salvation. And if the past sufferings of Jesus Christ are a present reality for us today, we look forward to the day when the present glory that Jesus Christ has at your right hand and with you in heaven will be our future reality. Strengthen and encourage us to to represent you well in this rapidly changing society. And may it all be for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. To close, we're going to sing the song, I Will Offer Up My Life, which has been recorded for us by the Crescent Music Team.